I, I mean, I've died on the street so many times. I, are you helping me to get out of there? Or are you taking my kid from me? I just had that feeling. I might need love now. Things that keep saying being stronger, but I am strong. Yeah, I would definitely rather walk down an alley than down the street. But I was always kind of in the, in the good of the city, so to speak, looking for things, just curious and uh, roaming. When I get stressed out, I'll color, or if my mind just starts thinking too much, I coloring is how I cope with just about everything, actually. Pretty much he saw the crown that I wear on top of my head, which which is invisible to most, sometimes even me. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back to When You Are Homeless. This is episode six of our podcast. Um, this particular episode, we're going to focus on an issue that I don't think either Allison or I would have thought would emerge, but did. And that is this issue of loneliness or on the flip side, companionship. Like, what does that look like for people experiencing homelessness? How long do these relationships last? How do they get formed? How do they get maintained? These are all things that I think a lot of people would not, or at least we, did not think to consider as we started this process. So before we get to all of that, we will remind you that you have hopefully had a chance to listen to Devin's story, which was released recently. Um, and so we just kind of want to reflect on, on what we found to be especially interesting about it. Um, and I guess since I was the one who interviewed him, I'll, I'll just start by saying a couple things about him. I, I remember him being really nervous. Hmm. Um, he wasn't really sure how he felt about being interviewed. And of course, hmm. if you listen to this, you immediately understand that it was my first interview because it's in a coffee <laughs> shop and there's all that noise. So I'm really sorry. But in a certain way, I feel like it lends a certain kind of explanation to his nervousness. If you picked oh, up on anything of his nervousness, yeah. like, he did not want to be wow. in this Telling place. Telling story in front of an espresso machine. Right. Mm. And we were in a tucked mm. away corner. It wasn't like yeah. anyone was listening. Um, I mean, I hardly knew him. I had met him once yeah. and I, I didn't want him to feel somehow like he was being interrogated. And the other people I interviewed, I interviewed them in a study carol in a library, which felt a little clinical and a little antiseptic. Mm, yeah. Um, which I did, first of all, for sound reasons. And also because I felt like those two people had a little bit more um, experience on the streets and being right. in the situation. Um, there was a level of comfort with them and telling their story. And you got the sense with Devin, and I don't know if people got this if they listened to his story, that it's it's sort of new for him yeah. to talk about. Yeah. Um, no one's really asked him these things, and he hasn't really been here, or mm -hmm. he hadn't really been here for very long at the time right. that I interviewed him. Um, so I think you can maybe tell, especially in that mm. first couple minutes when he's talking about getting off the plane and walking around and right. the quote that we talked about from him last episode about being offered crack, like his eyes are wide open. Um, in a kind of, if I'm going to put it in a literary context, like a boy meets world kind of way, like, wow, I'm in a totally new place. I've never been on a plane. I've mm. never been in situations like this. I got to mm. find a shelter. Like it was all very new to him. Um, and it really made him, quite sympathetic to me. I was really excited to kind of see him describe his situation in these positive ways. I think my favorite moment is when he says, and he used the F word. <laughs> <laughs> right. He has He's this innocence. Yeah. Of, yeah. 
this dude's telling me fucking go down to this fucking train station and fucking and it's like so incidental to yeah. the action but it's so new yeah. that it's still fresh in his mind that that but was how he says he used the f word he goes he used the f word right. he would never actually the, say yeah, that word yeah. as i did dear <laughs> kind <laughs> listeners um forgiven Um, so I I thought that about his story that it was very fresh and and he was very empathetic as a result of um, many things but part of it was the newness of it Mm -hmm. for for me Um, he has a lot of aspirations for his life that he's trying to kick around Mm -hmm. and I got the sense that he's still in the process of deciding kind of what he really wants to do you heard him mention maybe his um potential interest in picking up this trucking Mm -hmm. training that he had started back in North Carolina, but he's not really so excited about it. He's excited by the money that that he could make, but what he really wants to do is something more artistic. Right. Um, And at the end of the day, I think he would describe himself, well, he did describe himself as as sort of a a loner. Yeah. Um, He doesn't really like to be around Mm -hmm. many people. He'd like to, to have some space to contemplate his own art which for him means poetry, which for him means songwriting. And interestingly, I feel like he did, he seemed to connect his being a loner with holding him back, actually. Like he saw it as an opportunity. That's right. But he also, he, like he's so determined to stay in Colorado. But one of the things he says that I really noted, he says, um, there are a lot of opportunities for people like me. Once I open up a little more, once I get a steady job, totally. things will start changing. That's right. Yeah, so he feels that he's, trying to and the word he uses is embrace mm. he uses this word embrace i think at least 10 oh, wow. times yeah i don't know if like i'm that. trying to embrace hmm. denver or i'm trying to embrace this part of my character my own personality uh i'm trying to embrace my art hmm. um and behind that word is a sense that he's withheld before yeah i think and i think also with that word embrace he has this sort of um kind of a que sera, sera mentality. Like, mm-hmm. um, I'm just thinking he says things like, okay, think that was negative, but, or when he talks about being in prison, he keeps saying all these negative things happened, but they were all teaching me a lesson. Right. Like he takes these negative things and sees them as maybe they were supposed to happen and I've learned a lesson from them. And just to remind you, like his prison experience uh, sounded awful. Brutal. I mean, I'm sure that prison has got to be awful no matter how you experience it. Mm -hmm. But he describes, as you might remember, like being chained to a wall for being solitary for like days, weeks at a time. And given drugs, too. And given drugs, much like we were describing last time. Yeah, he talks about, he he was like, I wasn't going crazy. I just didn't want to be there. And then they'd give me sleep medication and that that would be the day. Yeah, it was just (laughs) harrowing. Yeah. and I'm sure, again, everyone's experience of prison, if they ever have been there, was probably is probably mm-hmm. terrible. But, yeah. but he was really traumatically affected by yep. it and willing to talk about it. And always, as you say, Allison, just ready to try to turn it into some lesson that he had learned. Um, and what felt like a genuine way. It didn't yeah. seem like he was trying to be trite for about sure. that. Yeah, for sure. Did you feel like he kind of relaxed as you, were, as you continued talking with him? I did. There was a certain point where he was talking about how this woman, Felicia, kept in touch with him while he was in prison, and she was about the only one. And I asked him a question 
about her and I pronounced her name Felicia. Right. I and love he kind that of moment. joked and laughed. He's like, all right, hold on. If it. we're going to record this, right. we got to get this right. Her name is moment. Felicia. Yeah. So I felt like that was kind of a turning point in the yeah. interview where like uh, after that, he was like, okay, I, I can kind of like right. joke with this dude. And he can drive. Yeah, too. it's yeah. okay. It's yeah. okay. And he, and he picked up on that and the rest mm. of the way through the interview felt somehow more relaxed, mm. I would say. Yeah. That's, mm. that's Devin. So I guess we should turn maybe then to the topic of today's episode, loneliness and companionship. And we've got plenty of excerpts to play for you from a number of different storytellers. In fact, almost all of them um, had something to say on this point. And we'll start with Devin, actually, since we've yeah, just talked about him. Devin is a good transition into this topic, because as we just discussed, he seems to narrow in on these few key uh, people in his life. And there seem to be very few, but the few that he has, he really um, idolizes. And he sees them as really being drivers of, pos- of his positive directions. That's right. And maybe I'll start with um, something that picks up from an earlier episode. I think it was episode four where we talked about art, um, and we had Devin read for you a poem. But we didn't really put that poem into mm-hmm. context, and he actually goes on after he recites the poem aloud to describe um, who it was about and why it was important. And so here's an excerpt of Devin talking about that. That's what's like music. And, and that, that's the situation. You know, her name's Tori. Okay. My name is Tori, man. Uh, like, yo, I, I met this chick at my job, man. I mean, I didn't call her a chick. I met this young lady at my job, man. Uh, we met up one time, like, I came to her little student housing and all of that. And, like, yo, she is so cool. Like, like no, seriously, bro, like, she is dope. Like, she don't. She's like a female that like a, got a male inside her. Like she don't really like to be around a lot of people. She's real quiet. She's smart as hell. Yeah. She's funny. She's beautiful. And uh, but the thing is, is like she don't like it. She don't really like it. She like to do with people on her time. So for me to be able like to come in the crib and like be with her when I want, be with her, be call and talk to her, yeah. I really didn't even notice that was like big because she came from California to come to school over here and and really didn't have nobody like she was doing everything on her own. So I started helping her, you know, like she had got a car and uh, I was just like simple and stuff, not major money or like that, but I was there for her because I, I seen that she was really trying, like the dude. And I said, I was able to get money, so I was just helping her when I can. Yeah. And she was like always stating me to the deepest point, like, yo, you helped me so much, like more than like anybody else out here. But now she's just a good friend, man. Like I really, I really stepped back from like, okay, alright, bro. If it was meant to happen, it'll happen down the line. Like y'all right. both, both young, whatever, whatever, but like really embrace it. as a good friend. I could talk to her about anything. Oh, um, I just talked to her probably like two days ago. I used to talk to her a lot, right, about not knowing who I was. Like, cause you know, I was in I was into the games back home when I was before I got locked up. Yeah. And so I, I really wanted to leave this shit alone when I came. Like when I came home, but I didn't have the balls like to say it. Yeah. And so like she know she know the person like 
that just like want to get away and write music and smoke and help people and just be me. And she was like, yo, I just want you to go somewhere like where you can just be yourself and be you. Like, yeah. She's like, I see that you're a good person. Like, behind all that shit you got going on, yeah. she used to always tell me that. And so what you can really see there is that the whole purpose of this poem was to provide some kind of thank you to a person whom, whom he had had some contact with who mattered greatly to him. And part of the reason that it mattered to him was that this person needed his help, yeah. needed his ear, mm. and he gave it to them. Um, and there was some reciprocation also. It was essentially a friendship Right. And you got the sense that he was, you know, also romantically potentially interested mm-hmm. in this woman, but clearly that was not the point of the poem, nor was it the point of him remembering this story. And I think elsewhere in Devin's story, he expresses this yearning to be able to help other people. He talks about how his mom mentions he could be this, I forget the job title, but someone who helps. Um, basically, like if you've been through... Um, experiencing homelessness and drug addictions, you can kind of get trained and help others kind of serve as a mentor. Right. And he expressed really wanting to do that and um, that he, he felt he would be good at that. Right. I think that's true. And I think it's something that he's trying to build up to mm-hmm. um, in much the way that the quote that you mentioned at the top of the episode mm-hmm. does. It kind of shows him being a person who knows that he needs to kind of quote unquote open up a little bit in order to be that person. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm not going to quote him. I'm not going to pull any other excerpts from his story, but I'll just quickly reference a couple of other things that you might yeah. remember from his story. One, when he's talking about um, what it takes to get out of bad situations, he says this, mm-hmm. I've been in bad situations, and one of the things that got, out of, that got me out of it was good music and talking to good people like Ms. Shelby. Mm. Um, that talking mattered. Having someone to say, here's what's going on, in my life, what do you think? It, you, you take it for granted that you have these people in your life, and I think when you're a person experiencing homelessness, you you don't get that very often. And mm-hmm. when you do, you're very aware of it, and it makes a huge difference. The other point I'll make about him just really quickly is that when he was working in Raleigh, he made mention of the fact that he was really good at the job, and he was very proud at being good at the job. Mm-hmm. But what he didn't like about the job and what ultimately led him to quit it, as he says, he liked working, but he didn't like working with people. Working with people was just more than he wanted to handle. And at that young age, I mean, even now, I I would imagine Devin to be 24, 25. The time he's talking about, he must have been 19, 20. Like, yeah, it was just too much for him. Well, and I was so curious about that moment because he says my coworker was old school and he Mm -hmm. didn't say what that meant. And I was just wondering, like, I mean, it could have been so many things. It could have been racism. It could have been Mm -hmm. like, I don't know, telling him what to do, maybe making him do all the work, but it was kind of like, it was kind of mature of him not to like go off on this coworker, but see it as himself. Like, okay, I had struggled to work with this other person. Right. Yeah. That's not a move that necessarily everyone that we interviewed would have made. Yeah, I absolutely. Think. Yeah. Um, okay, so we'll move from Devin then to Dale, and Dale um, has lots of stories about companionship mm-hmm. and loneliness that come up, just unbelievably touching. Yeah. Um, yeah. I hardly even feel like 
I want to necessarily set this up. I just want to play it for you. Because you live out an experience and you live out an experience and you can't imagine what the experience is until you go through it. You know, freezing on the street, you know, I mean, many nights, uh, a lady named Cynthia Rogers, a good friend of mine in Plymouth, Minnesota, she came and visited me when I was out in Morrison. I went up to the library, and it was taking me, I was at Samaritan, or, or uh, Salvation Army sick room. It would take me all day to get up to the library, and if the library closed at four, I'd have a five-minute window, right? And, and, and I sent her, uh, I, I sent her, uh, the computers were about to shut down, and I said, send me hope and warmth. And then the computer shut down because the library was closing. And so basically, I walked. You know, I, I knew that it was going to take me at least, you know, it was going to take me at least four hours in the cold to get back. And I got to the 16th Street shuttle, and I sat, I have it here someplace. I, I, I got to the 16th Street shuttle and I sat down on a street seat and, and next to me there was a purple 5x7 index card and I turned it over and it said, Hope. What do you do with that? I, I mean, the odds of that happening are 1 in 10 trillion. And I had that here in my pocket until the card was so ragged that I just put it in a plastic bag and set it aside because it was... But I've lived off of that. Yeah, I've taken that card out many times. I mean, I'm about to cry just listening yeah. to that. I mean, it's... Yeah. In fact, every time I've listened to that story, that's the part where I have to pause. I mean, mm. you can see that he, he chokes up at this point. Yeah. Um, He's such a focused, driven, ambitious, smart person. And so much of what he wanted to talk about hmm. was that. Hmm. Showing that he was these things. Providing a sense of a plan for how mm. he would use his ambition and his skills and his experience mm -hmm. to get off the street. And it was all very professionally done. Hmm. And so to take the quote that you just heard and to put it into that context is to make it even more heartbreaking mm -hmm. because he has this moment of realizing that it's not enough. It's not enough to be smart. It's not enough to push the cart up the hill. There has to be someone to talk to. There has to be some sense of hope. And we've, we've talked, you and mm -hmm. I have, about this is a kind of like partially uplifting moment. And I think it is, but it's also deeply sad. Like. Right. He doesn't have anyone. Right. And he Cynthia, couldn't he couldn't even have time to email Cynthia Rogers. Right. Like, yeah. Like that was a miracle that he got to send six words right. in a library before it closed. He never talked about a response mm. from her. Right. Um, one of the more, I guess, memorable or mm. two or three of the more memorable moments in his story involve utter loneliness and heartbreak and a sense of depression and yeah. doom.
Yeah. And so that he clings so feverishly to a five by seven index card right. is just so telling about right. the rest of that life mm-hmm. in this moment. I mean, it's just incredible. And the other relationship I'm thinking about with Dale is with his son. Mm-hmm. And he says, so my son's 18, like things are about to get crazy. I wish he could come here, but he has he can't stay with me when I'm on the streets. I don't right. want him on the streets. Right. So it's kind of this extra layer of urgency in his mm-hmm. situation. I think that's right. Um, I mean, there's so many things more I could say about, about Dale and his sense of loneliness and companionship. Um, there, there are other um, friends and acquaintances that he, he talked about within his life that were clearly important to him. Um, this man, Tom Marsh, who was a sculptor, mm-hmm. Yeah. in Louisville when he was living there and had his speaker business going, um, who died by suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a turning point for him too. And it was mm-hmm. the only other time in the, in the, uh, interview where he cried. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, so both of the most emotional moments for him had to do with losing a friend or, or, or gaining a sense of potential, um, connection hmm. with another person hmm. or, or just with like an idea like yeah. of hope. That was enough. It's amazing sometimes how little it takes for someone in a compromising position to want to keep going on. In this Hmm. case, it's a five by seven index card on the side of a bus. I think Lucky says um, it's a little, I know that sounds simple, but it's the simple things that make life worth living. And for Dale, Dale seems like someone who would roll his eyes at that. Hmm. And yet here he is living it out and experiencing the truth of it. Right. Um, so we're going to move on to Anna Lynn, who you have, um, we've only heard a little bit from her so far. We heard about her in that, our trauma episode where she was talking about um, her experience with domestic violence, which is a cycle in her life. Um, and you'll hear her story soon, her full story. Um, but in this episode, we wanted to show kind of another experience with on our theme of loneliness and companionship. Um, Cause she just again and again, she gets in these relationships right. and um, this, the moment you're about to hear is one where I think it kind of just holds everything in it within this moment, all the different factors that she has been experiencing. So here's Anna Lynn. Later on, I got, I got in a relationship. He's a crackhead. Well, it's his day. I was homeless then okay. when I left him. I have nowhere to go and then I end up I end up meeting a black guy. Turned out I don't know he was a crackhead. Boy, he was something else. He was hiding things and I don't know and he couldn't work so I decided he's my baby daddy. Okay, I'm somebody's gonna work. You or you or me. So he couldn't work so I did it. I said, You're gonna watch my kid, your kids, my kids. Your kids and I. So he said, Okay. So coming home, I was like a crack addict looking for him. Every time I lay my money in the floor or in the, my purse, it will be gone. My man is doing drugs. I'm broke all the time because he's stealing my money. Or I have, I don't want to lose him, so I got to give him money. Then I realized I'm stupid, you know. I don't have him anyway. And I sit there and think, I don't have him anyway. He don't come home. <laughs> If I give him $100, he'd take off for who knows how long. 
So I don't have him. He's not helping me financially. He's not here with me emotionally, physically. I lost him already. I never had him from the beginning. He uses me. So either join him or leave him. So it hurts because I care for him. For one year I went through this looking for him. I'm trying to change him to my way or lifestyle that whatever she's doing is not good. So every every week, every time I get paid, he'll be out there. I'll be looking for him to bring him home or take my money that he had, whatever reason I'm out there for. So again, I think you can just, you can hear how she's, Anna Lynn is in such a crappy position like she's looking for someone she's first of all she's looking for someone to love i think she's looking for a partner and she has money to worry about jobs kids to worry about and she thinks she finds someone and then he turns out to not be a help with kids to not be a help with money to be a drug addict like right when you get a chance to listen to her story you'll see that this excerpt is kind of reminiscent of a pattern yeah right absolutely i mean in some ways it's like a a kind of incredibly extreme version of a kind of middle class complaining about one's spouse, mm. right? <laughs> like, he's not worth it. You know, like, he's not giving me anything. Why am I in this relationship? Except mm. you multiply it by drug use and you multiply it by domestic violence and you multiply right. it by... Like neglecting children. And child neglect. And yeah. it's just, the stakes are so much higher, mm-hmm. I think in this kind of situation versus the one that I was describing. And yet at its core, it's a question of like dissatisfaction with one's partner. Mm -hmm. Um, That, that in some strange abstract way feels Mm -hmm. familiar. Right. That's a really good point. We've all had those moments probably. It's a really good point. And I feel like, like Annalyn is so powerful about what, like kind of talking about her identity as a mother. And then this sort of return to this, complaining about the partner this universal kind Mm -hmm. of this guy isn't the best right now it's sort of this like it almost feels like a slip in her um in her the story she's telling i see again when you tell her when you hear her story it's very i am a good mother and this is why everything went crazy with my kids and why i don't have them right now and this is almost like like yeah i have all this stuff going on but i also want to love someone and I want a partner who reciprocates. I'm curious to ask you, uh, since this is one of, I think, two mothers that we have yeah. here, did you find that, that for, for either Anna Lynn or later we'll hear from Lucky, like were those expressions of a desire for companionship or those kind of like complaints about companions in any way unique from the other ones? Or did you feel like they were actually quite similar? You mean as mothers? Right. Was there anything, quote unquote, motherly about their desires for companionship? Were there characteristics of their, their desires for companionship that seemed connected to their motherhood? Or were they, in fact, quite clearly looking for the same thing that all of us are? I think they were looking. I, hmm. It's a good question. I will say also Nicole is a mother, and that came up in her story quite a bit. Right. I think in the case of Nicole, Anna Lynn, and Lucky, they all care for their children so deeply and they want a partner the way anyone else wants one. And and it, like in some cases, it was like, actually in all cases, it seemed like 
they weren't finding someone who was helpful in that way. And that was obviously a very challenging situation. Totally. I mean, when I look at this description of this dude and I look at Lucky's description of Mm -hmm. dude she's involved with, like one question is like, what is the attraction? Like, what do these guys have to offer? Because it has to be something, right? It's not like you would just pick anyone because they're there. Or maybe it is. Maybe maybe Mm -hmm. you... Maybe there's no no room whatsoever for choosiness when you're in a situation like these women find themselves to be in. Is it that these these women feel like they simply don't have a choice to pick the kind of partner that they would want to, and so they are faced with the choice of either someone who's maybe not ideal, clearly in this case not mm-hmm. ideal for Annalyn, or choose to be alone? And the the choice of being alone is just not one that they are willing to make. I, I feel like it probably wasn't so black and white. I think it, uh, many of them mentioned Anna Lynn and uh, I think mostly Anna Lynn made it very clear. She was like, things were really good for this year. And then he hit me. And then right. he kept hitting me. And that she said that many times. Like she, she expressed like, this guy, he was really good at, at first. <laughs> right. And then... Okay stuff went away right Um, right so i think again like any any relationship you think something good is there and then it turns out it's not gonna work it does seem clear that that annalyn's notions of companionship are wrapped up in the notion of a partner like Mm -hmm. a romantic partner like that's a -hmm. thing that she very much wants and is after would you say i think so Yeah. yeah um and then I think we'll move next to Erica, who, when I spoke to Erica, actually, her sense of loneliness struck me, like, punched me in the face. Mm. It really, really surprised me, and it made me, it just, that, speaking with Erica is when I first realized I didn't know anything about um, the experience of homelessness, because I just, I always had this notion that people had cliques and friends and mm. a community. And Erica made it very clear that she does not, but that she wants one. Right. And just, um, well, you've already heard her story, but I'll let you listen to this snippet again that I think kind of um, really encapsulates her feeling of aloneness. I would definitely rather walk down an alley than down the street. People tend to shy away from me and I, I, that's another thing you know, I don't really understand I, I don't know I get some people tell me I'm intimidating and others say that I'm not and I guess I can see both sides of that so I, I really can't figure it out intimidate people but like people tend to go the opposite direction oh, which is okay because I, I don't I had a guy in Salt Lake City get up off the train and move away from me when I sat down I don't care like I want to be around normal freaking people either but why did they turn away like I am I'm really confident too like from everything else going on I love myself a lot I know who I am what I am I know what my abilities are, pretty much. Um, anybody be lucky to have me as a friend, blah, blah, blah. But people shy away, and I don't understand it. 
Uh, there are people, though, that, like, meet me off, caught off guard, and those are usually the ones that turn out to be the best. You know, like, like not given the, the choice, like, he needs me. People end up liking me. Um, so the, so the unexpected chance encounters are the best ones usually. Um, no, I'm by myself 90% of the time. Um, the other 10% is usually people that I know or run into from the other place or the church. Um, but I don't rely on anybody for anything except myself. Because at the end of the day, like, it's me that's responsible for you. And I feel in this... What we talked about quite a bit last episode with Erica is her sort of, what I kind of see as her having this notion of who she is and that mm-hmm. being challenged by her circumstances. Mm-hmm. I think that's happening here. She's like, I, I'm confident. I don't need anyone. But why are they turning away? Right. <laughs> like this kind of back and forth, like whatever, I don't care. But I, re- I, d- I do Actually care. Actually do care. Yeah. yeah it's a defense mechanism, yeah. I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Or at least that's how it would play for me. Right. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, I, I mean, there's so many lines in there that that stand out to me. I, I'm I'm fascinated by the uh, the line about how the unexpected chance encounters are the hmm. best ones. Yeah. Um, it has to be that she's just walking into every encounter assuming that they're not going to want to right talk to her. And I guess I'm curious to ask you when I look at this. I was really thinking about this as I was, as I was re-listening to her. Yeah. Her story, this part about where she says, some people tell me I'm intimidating and others say I'm not. And mm-hmm. I guess I can see both sides of that. Mm-hmm. You sat down with her. Yeah. Is there anything about her that's intimidating? Or did when you listened to that, were you like, what are you talking about? You're not intimidating at all. So she does say, she says she carries around 120 pounds with her. And she is she's tall and very like kind of strong looking. Okay. Um, she's over six feet for sure. Okay. Um, and I mean, I wouldn't say intimidating, but she, she is kind of, I don't, I mean, when she said that, I felt, I felt sad, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, she, she looks like she's determined. She has that look about her kind of like, don't fuck with me. Yeah. I think she does have a look. I think it might have even been cut, but at one point, because she mumbled it, she said, I don't know if I have resting bitch face or what. Okay. I think that got cut. Okay. But she did She did kind of wonder if her affect is I see. pushing people away. Um, I also do wonder if it has part, if it has to do with her transition. Because um, she does, um, like she's recently begun her transition. I see. And I know some people are scared of the transgender community. And I, I mean, I feel like that has to play a part of her experiences. I got to imagine, I think I have to imagine that going through that transition makes you hyper aware yeah. of yourself and your yeah. appearance mm-hmm. and of other people's responses to you. Right. Um, and I wonder how that plays in these moments of unexpected encounters. I would be fascinated to see that play out or to, to hear her talk about that. Like what, right. you know, what levels of self consciousness drop away hmm. in the unexpected encounters that maybe just have to be there. 
Right. And the moments when you come into it with a certain amount of baggage about how you think others perceive you. Mm-hmm. Um, I see that as probably pretty like consistent and central to her notions of interactions with anyone right. at this point, probably. And she has faced this like explicit uh, um, rejection in many ways, but particularly she mentioned being rejected from the center, which is the LGBTQ right. resource center. And she felt very unwelcomed there, Okay, which I think pl- certainly plugs into and perhaps energizes what you have been talking about. This awareness of maybe I don't fit right. in places. Right. Yeah. yeah it, she wears it on her sleeve. You can see right. it mm-hmm. in the whole, throughout the whole yeah. story she tells. Um, maybe we'll transition now into a little bit of an excerpt from Marissa. Um, and in this case, we have another person like Anna Lynn, whose um, sense of companionship is, is mostly tied up in a notion mm-hmm. of um, a partner, a romantic mm-hmm. partner. And here's what she has to say about that for herself. Other strength that helps me is like a significant other. They help build you up and make you feel that you're worth it. Um, and I also build them up. So that makes it super strength. You know? so, and I mostly build them up more and then I kind of like work on myself. So there's that quote and then I'm going to provide another one from her that kind of elaborates on this particular person that she's with and what her hopes are for her own life in conjunction with his. So if we both get our ducks in order, we can pull ourselves out of this so they can never get into a housing. Yeah, so I I just like, I'm happy that I met this new person Mm -hmm. and I don't want to do those drugs. Mm -hmm. And I told them in order to be with me, you're going to have to be sober. I want Mm -hmm. you to be wanted because you're on drugs. And they agreed, of course. I said, because somebody that really loves you won't let you do that. So you can see that for for Marissa, you know, she draws strength from this person. And she likes the idea of providing strength to this person. Both of those things are really important to her mm-hmm. as a sense of her identity. And her sense of hope, really, for the future is tied up with this other person whom she's met. I don't know what else to say about, about her. I mean, she, she had some really fun stuff to say, interesting stuff to say about her partner and her preferences for men who've been in jail that were kind of interesting. Yeah, that was interesting. I guess you all haven't heard her story yet, but um, it is very fascinating to hear her talk about. She says she prefers men in jail. Um, or who have been in or who are in. Yeah. Either one, right? I think both. Because on the outside, men are free, so they don't know the reality. Or, um, they don't care about hurting feelings. Consider this your teaser for the Marissa right. story. It's actually quite thoughtful what she says. Yeah, it is. Also, I'm thinking with Marissa, there's um, the quotation you all have already heard about her her role as mentor with her, quote, drag daughters. Right. Um, and how that she gets so much satisfaction out of being a mentor for other people who've been through her same experience. Right. And how the sharing of that experience is what's really important and kind of also boosts her own confidence, I think. Yeah, that's a common thread between mm-hmm. the excerpt from her story we just heard and those experiences for mm-hmm. sure. Um, and here's one more Marissa quote um, of her talking about the importance of a support system of any kind. I think having that support system would help them to build their self-esteem and make them know that it would be okay to do it on their own. But some people don't want to be alone. 
because they get lonely and depressed and they need some compassion. Maybe get an animal, a lover, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, whatever floats their boat or activities they can do. It's, it's a lot of loneliness. Nobody ever thought of it that way, but yeah. What's interesting to me about that quote from Marissa is that she seems to be speaking from a place of being beyond that in a certain way. Yeah. She has this companion True. and she's remembering what it mm. was like to not have one right. and trying to almost provide this kind of advice to mm-hmm. people or a generalized notion of what it might mean to be homeless. Um, when she says it's a lot of loneliness, the it there is homelessness. Homelessness right. is a lot of loneliness. That's what she's talking about. Um, and I think, you know, and, and many of the excerpts you've seen here, you, you get that you get a sense that these are people who are in many ways, maybe without even knowing it, really striving for a connection. Mm-hmm. And I love that she mentioned maybe get an animal, a lover. And I'm wondering what that novel you read or the memoir you read, Blake. Oh, uh, right. Cause the whole point is that he's not the whole point, but a big large part of the novel or memoir is that he's traveling with the, with the dog. A dog. Oh, and he makes it super clear in the intro. Like yeah. I had some ground rules. I would not, go any place where I thought I would be putting the dog in danger. Um, I understood that this would limit how, where I could stay or for how long, Mm -hmm. but it was a non-negotiable. He was going to be with this dog. Um, And there's plenty of times along the journey where he kind of does this thing where he's like, Lizbeth was just like shameless and how she like acted like she was haggard (laughs) when we really needed a ride and how (laughs) as soon as we got one, she would perk up. Like you get that sense of a kind of, Hmm. partnership partnership Hmm. which he's also very explicit about he's like look i'm not going to try to overly romanticize this but if you've had a dog you understand what this is like and that's Mm -hmm. what this is like for me too it's Mm -hmm. no different Mm -hmm. um so yeah that was that was very much a part of that story it's even in the title yeah so i think it's so keen that marissa picked up on that and it sounds like she's never had an animal but she understands that right and now i'm trying to think like did we have any I don't think we did. We didn't have any of the eight storytellers mention a pet. I don't think so. I mean, I'm wondering if that's location. Like, I was in a place where I don't believe animals, except for service animals, were allowed. Okay. So people visiting there, or those with pets, maybe don't come to the gathering place. I don't think animals are allowed in St. Francis I've never seen a dog in a shelter. So in that way, we had this sort of uh, unintended filter, (laughs) maybe. Right. I mean, certainly walking around like Colfax. Yeah. Riding I've the buses. Riding the buses. buses. I, I've seen people with dogs yeah. who are panhandling. So I don't know yeah. whether to make that connection at all. Yeah. Um, but it seems like a, nat- a natural move that I would make yeah. if I were in that situation. Right. Yeah. Um, so s- in a very similar way to Marissa, Lucky also kind of ends her story with having a partner and she ends it in a sense of hope. Um, she feels hope with this partner. Um, and I'll, maybe we'll give you the quote and then we'll discuss it after. So here's Lucky. Currently right now, I have a fiance. He loves me and he takes care of me. Every night I'm sleeping next to him. He's there to tell me and boost up my confidence in being able to go get my daughter. I see my daughter more often. Yes, it's not as much as I would like, and each visit is not how I want it to go. But it's okay because I know I'm going to get to a point where she has her own room in my house where she we sleep under the same roof every night, you know? 
pretty much what this man is giving me and what he's allowed me to give to myself is hope. And yes, we still do have our drug habit. Like he has a drug, he has the same drug habit as me, but he doesn't let it take control of him emotionally like I do. And he doesn't let it um, pick and choose how he's going to live life or control his decisions like I maybe sometimes do. All I know is that I'm thankful for him. I'm thankful for my new outlook on life and I'm thankful that I'm getting back on track. And I think I think Blake and I wanted to end with Lucky's because we both felt a sort of sense of ambivalence a little bit in the way mm-hmm. we were feeling about this mm-hmm. this quotation from Lucky. Like it on the one hand you have she it's like her hope card. It's like Dale's hope card. Right. This man Lucky kind of sees as her hope card. What he's allowed to give myself is hope. Mm-hmm. But then and this is probably our outsider judginess, <laughs> they have this drug habit that they share. And I think right away it's sort of like, oh, is this going to work? Yeah, especially when you remember the earlier deeply troubling, vivid, yeah. incredibly reflective, well-told story about mm-hmm. hitting it in the back of the car right. with a stranger, basically, right. and how that was a, a clear turning point right. for the worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's... You want to believe that this can work out. Right. And yet when she so self, with such self-awareness mentions, mm-hmm. yeah, we still have our drug habit. Mm-hmm. I, I want to believe her. Do I? I well, well, I don't know. I mean, she, she seems to say that she lets it take control of her emotionally. She says it, right? Yeah. But he doesn't. Right. I hope she's right about that. Right. And I hope that, in fact, the companionship that she has with this person who, if she's she's right about him, will sort of do the thing that Marissa talked about and, like, be this support system and mm-hmm. boost her up, super strength, right? Like, certainly I think she's better off with someone who she feels that way about than not. Mm-hmm. I would hope. I don't know. What do you think? Well, yeah, and it is making me think. I feel like I'm wondering how much our... Um, our privileges, so to speak, of not having these really, um, uh, like, abject situational challenges affect how we're looking at relationships. I'm thinking about the question you asked earlier, Blake, like, about mothers and finding relationships. And here, like, my first thought with Lucky, with what she just told us, is I'm like, uh, like, red flag, like, you don't want a guy to make your whole world better. Right. Like, if a guy's making your world better, that's probably not going to last kind right, of thing. Right, But, like, maybe that's not the case when you're having a, when you have a drug addiction and you want to get your kid back and you are trying to get back on track. The stakes are so high. Yeah. Right? That I wonder if a lot of these sort of, like, 21st century therapeutic terms mm. sort of go out the window when right. you're in a situation like this. Like, right. Sure, we could throw out the word codependence here, <laughs> right. right? And like, I mean, maybe we could try to be armchair psychologists about the situation, but we don't. We right. have no place to say like right. what what's best for her, and I think it would be dangerous to kind of try to to put those. Uh, well, it makes me wonder: are those are those luxuries that we right. in the middle class get to totally. 
to ask. All these cliches, like you have to love yourself before you love someone else. Like, I feel like we've heard several storytellers say, he taught me how to love me. Or like, he Lucky says, he showed me the crown I wear mm -hmm. that I sometimes don't know myself. That's right. Yeah. Um, God, we're really, yeah, we're, we're clearly getting out of our depth <laughs> yeah, quickly here. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll back out of the weeds. <laughs> but, but, but it is worth asking the question about like, what are the dynamics of how, how someone experiencing homelessness negotiates mm. romantic relationships mm -hmm. versus how do those not experiencing it negotiate it? Are they, are we even talking mm -hmm. about the same ball game yeah. or not? Yeah. I, I guess I'm, I'm unclear on that. And I, I do want to add that we've sort of mostly focused, by happenstance, I would say, in this episode, on those women who seem to be looking for romantic partners right. with other men. Um, I think the men that I interviewed spoke on the issue of companionship, romantically speaking, and both in the case of Don Juan and Devin, and yeah. Don Juan doesn't have an, an, an excerpt in this episode, but he had a couple of really fun interactions with people, women whom he seemed interested in, Yeah, but he didn't really push it. And he didn't really seem like he was necessarily looking for like a long-term companion or a girlfriend. Right. I would say the same was probably true of Devin mm -hmm. and both of them were kind of introspective and on this kind of like journey of discovery that right. they're more focused on at this point. Right. And for Dale, Dale's been um, married before and, you know, he's no fan of his ex-wife, clearly. Right. Um, and so all of the things that he had to say about romantic relationships were tied up in the stress that came out of being in what he perceived as a really bad relationship. Right. And now it's affected his kind of situation with his kids. But I didn't get the sense at all from him that that's something he was looking for. Though he did speak a little bit about these chance encounters mm -hmm. with people on the street in a very philosophical way mm -hmm. about like how important it is to sort of like be there for each other in those right. ways. He wouldn't have said it nearly as, as tritely as that, but um, I just kind of wanted to address this issue of like yeah. how the men that we've described have thought about yeah. these issues. Mm -hmm. I want to actually end on the story of um, companionship that comes from, a weird thing that sometimes yeah. happens at the St. Francis Center. I'm so glad you remembered this. Yeah. yeah. So, so it happens not so often, but every once in a while, in fact, I've seen it twice in nine years, um, that Duncan, this, this guy that I often talk to, who's great, he's super smart and he works at the shelter um, and he handles, you cannot even imagine the number of different kind of things that he handles. Mm. He's, a, he's a really great guy. Um, and I've seen him twice in, uh, in seven or nine years or however long I've been there actually come out and officiate a wedding wow. in front of me. <laughs> like, <Wow. laughs> like I'm sitting there at the table, which is right by the entrance. The handwritten sign. The writing, handwritten sign is there. Like, this one person came in one day and she was like, oh, what is this? And I was like, oh, this is the writing center. <laughs> we help with writing. She's like, can you help me write a song? And I'm like, um, yeah, okay. What kind of song? I mean, I probably can't. But I'm happy to listen, <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's like, well, I just wrote this song for uh, my friend who's getting married. And I was like, oh, wow, that's really exciting. And she's like, can I sing it? I was like, yeah, that'd be great. So she did. And I was like, oh, that's great. Well, when's the wedding? And she's like, I think it's in about <laughs> three minutes. <laughs> and then these two people came in. Duncan came out. He said wow. the most basic of words, 
pronounced them man and wife, and then they left. And did she sing her song? She did. Okay. <laughs> and that was it. Wow. And then they left. And then, like, you know, 10 minutes later, someone wants a resume. Did the whole, <laughs> right. did the whole chaotic room, like, stop and cheer? Or no. was, like, no one else no was one looking? No one stopped. Like, people Whoa. were literally walking by them as the words were being Whoa. pronounced. Wow. Um, Duncan said, congratulations. The friend who sat down with the song with me said, congratulations. I waved and said, congratulations. <laughs> but that was it. There were, there were no other witnesses to the wedding. Yeah. Um, did they look really happy? They like, did. They looked yeah. sort of like... I guess I would say, like, cutely embarrassed at how weird it was that it was happening. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, like, holding hands and, like, yeah. rubbing each other's shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, and the other one, you know, was very similar. But by then, like, oh, my God, these weddings, like seen you know, it, they right? happen all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Always getting in the way of these resumes. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to help this person with a resume, and these guys are trying to get married over here. What's up with that? <laughs> I'm really glad you remembered that. <laughs> Uh, and, and I think we had said, or if we didn't, um, we're going to end this episode with, uh, a completely unrelated, um, excerpt from Dale. Here it is. People everywhere are becoming more of what they actually are. That's what I see. I, and I see, and it's easier to see it in street people. I, I, I mean, there, there, there was... You know, it's so easy to make judgments on people, you know, when when you don't know them. And, and I mean, obviously, you're down in City Mission, you don't know any of these people, right? But, but there was a, a lady that was trying to walk, and, and she kept falling down. And, the, and this lady that I, you know, knew remotely just came over and just wrapped her arms around her and said, it's going to be okay. And stayed with her for like probably 45 minutes before the paramedics. And she tried to walk a couple more times. And I see, you know, it's not an inherent goodness. It's a developed goodness. It's people deciding that they're going to, exercise empathy and kindness and then on the opposite side you know I mean I was upstairs in the chapel sleeping and you know there you know someone just started shouting on the other side and there are two people that were holding knives you know which you know I mean that doesn't go over real well in the mission you know knife fights really don't fly but but I, I, I would say that there's a, an enormous higher degree of transparency on people that are on the street. Design and sound support, thanks to Jonathan Howard. Our theme music was composed by Jeff Stacks. For support for interview space and scheduling, thanks to Melanie Deem and The Gathering Place. And at St. Francis Center, thanks to Andrew Spinks for permissions and support. Also thanks to the DU, the University of Denver Writing Program, and its executive director, Douglas Hesse. And another special thanks to Julie Parrish, director of the University of Denver Writing Center. Thanks also to Kateri McRae for sound support and equipment, and to Andrea Sanz for social media outreach and photography. Thank you, Chris Bunch. And thank you, Sarah Hoffman. See you next week. Ha, ha, ha.